Service radio. Full service radio. Full service. Full service. Full service. Full service radio. From Full Service Radio, this is Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Riza and Ethnocene Collectives. We're your hosts, Maggie Lemire. And Mia Sarah. And we'd like to welcome you back to our podcast, a show where we talk to bad feminist filmmakers who are confronting and changing the film industry through an intersectional and deep colonial practice. That's a mouthful, but we're very sincere about all of it. <laughs> uh, welcome, Mia Sarah, to co-hosting today. Thank you. I'm excited to be a co-host for our second season. Yeah, so um, the big update for our audience is that our beloved Emily Hong is actually in Southeast Asia right now, where I'll be joining her temporarily next week because she is delving deep into the next phase of production on our film together, Above and Below the Ground. And Mia Sarah, who is our wonderful creative director and sometimes guest and now host, is going to be taking the helm to move things forward. And Mia Sarah, I'm super excited to actually be able to have the space and the time to talk with you about feminist filmmaking and learn from you over all the many conversations to come. So thanks for sharing all the things I know you're going to share in the season ahead. Right back at you, Maggie. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> awesome. So today we're going to be talking about healing through filmmaking. And our guest is Rebecca Byerly, who's a filmmaker, journalist, and ultra marathon runner, whose film Women of the Mountain is um, examining a story of intergenerational trauma, and she'll tell us more about the, the film that she's working on. And Maggie, why do you think it's important to tell a story like this? Um, right before I came here, I was meeting with one of my clients, and we're talking about uh, doing a short video project to kind of highlight the epidemic of um, intimate partner violence as a real um, conflict issue globally, um, I was really amazed to learn that, you know, in a place like Afghanistan, there's thousands and thousands, you know, of people who die each year from battlefield deaths, but then there's many, many more women who are dying from intimate partner violence. And so it made me really think about how this phenomenon, which of course isn't only happening in countries like Afghanistan, but which is such a reality in the United States, I think pretty much everyone I know has had someone in their lives who's either been a victim or has been some part of the equation um, and certainly has heard about it, it still remains like, quite invisible. So first of all, I think talking about how we as feminist filmmakers are bringing an issue like this to the forefront is really important. But then Moreover, how do we do that as a process when it's touched our own lives? Um, and so Rebecca, who I've been really lucky to know for many years before either one of us knew that we'd become filmmakers, um, has, I think, really courageously decided to, to delve into the story and think about how do we tell a story like this um, with nuance and empathy and holistically and ask the questions and see where they lead. Um, and do it in a way that can be transformational to people who see it and also, you know, to herself. Um, Mia Sarah, why is this topic uh, important to you? Yeah, so I think the reason why I started doing documentaries was because it was an opportunity for me to reflect on myself and reflect on the light, like the world around me, and, and it's an opportunity to grow as a person. 
see what other people are doing and see how that aligns with my own goals and what I can do to be a better person. So when we were speaking to Rebecca, this theme of um, healing in filmmaking is actually a goal of mine in my filmmaking process, but I never really thought of it uh, or heard it said in that way. So I'm really curious to hear about Rebecca's process and how um, she got to that point. So let's get into it. Let's hear from Rebecca. Uh, Let me do a quick bio about her experiences. Like I said, she's a filmmaker, journalist, and ultra marathon runner, which I don't know what it is exactly, so she'll explain some more what that means. Um, She has lived in India for nearly a decade as a foreign correspondent, where she wrote and produced multimedia pieces for the New York Times, National Geographic, CNN, the Christian Science Monitor, and other publications. She has run some of the most challenging ultramarathons throughout the world, from Mongolia to Libya, including two 200-plus-mile races around Lake Tahoe. She's currently based in New York City, continuing to work for the Times, and she's working on the film that we're going to talk about today, Women of the Mountain. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hi, Rebecca. Great to have this space to talk with you. I'm I'm excited to be with two other filmmakers. <laughs> so let's start by having you tell us, Rebecca, about um, how you got into filmmaking and a little bit about your background. Was this something that you uh, knew from an early age you would be interested in pursuing, or like how did this come to you? I grew up in rural North Carolina and Southern Virginia, and I would say that. I was always interested in people. I am so fascinated by people, and I think that we have so much to learn from asking questions. And, you know, just sometimes from taking a step back just to to learn from what's around us. And, you know, I did not have a lot of exposure to culture growing up in Pleasant Garden, North Carolina, and I'm really thankful that I had the opportunity to go to American University, which is where I met you, which was a whole new world for me. Um, and while at American, had the opportunity to spend a year abroad in Cairo, Egypt, and traveled all over the Middle East and North Africa. And the experiences like this really opened me up to the world and to culture, um, to people and places that I would have otherwise never known. And I always was a runner. I was never a great runner. In high school, I ran cross-country and track. And then in college, was fortunate to have a mentor who just took me all over the country running ultramarathons, which Mia Sarah, an ultramarathon is anything longer than 30 miles. So early on, running was kind of a window for me to explore the world and to go places that I would have otherwise not had the opportunity to go, like Libya or China running all over the world, and eventually that's how I started my career as a journalist. So I would, to answer your question, I would say that though I didn't study journalism, I was always interested in being a journalist. But of course, I was mortified to actually write, which is a problem when you want to be a journalist. In 2007, I moved to India. Uh, at the time, I was work- working in development on a, and on a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship, but it really morphed in to getting a job with CNN in 2008, uh, writing um, feature sports stories for the CNN homepage in the lead-up to the Olympics all over China. And then that, you know, morphed just into me continuing to write for various publications. But in terms of how did it lead to filmmaking, uh, I would say in 2012, 
I had been working as a journalist for several years. I had finally started working for The Times, which is like the pinnacle as a journalist. And I realized, though, that here I am on the other side of the world writing for the best publication I can think of, the demographic that I really care about, which is where I grew up, the community I grew up in, they don't read the New York Times. And I realized that I really wasn't reaching a, a vital audience that I really wanted to reach, which is like my family and friends where I grew up. And I, and I also saw, though, that film was another way to reach people with a story because while my friends in North Carolina and my family might not read the New York Times, they do watch HBO and they do watch Netflix and they do watch Hulu. And so I thought filmmaking was another way to reach people. Absolutely. Um, so how did you like practically start pursuing filmmaking? I mean, like most things in life, you know, you could say it's by accident, though I think this was pretty intentional. Uh, in 2012, my aunt was dying of cancer. And I uh, say she was dying of cancer. She was dying of cancer, but she was also dying, I came to learn, from the residual effects of just abuse. From her. She had been in an incredibly abusive relationship for over a decade, and she just really never recovered from the trauma and I had grown up knowing that, but, you know, I was, a, I was a kid, and I really didn't understand what is trauma. I didn't understand some of her behaviors. But in 2012, I was 29, and I had covered conflict. And so when I was taking care of my aunt that summer, and she would wake up in the night and cover her face and scream in terror, because in her mind, she was still getting kicked in the face by her husband, who is now in jail for the rest of his life for killing two people, I understood that this was trauma and that she had never really recovered from the abuse that she had experienced from her husband. And she had a 10-year-old son who was in the other room listening to all of this. And I realized, wow, he's also experiencing this trauma, and this is my first cousin. So I go back to India because that is where I work, and, mm -hmm. you know, I would love to be there with her to take care of her, but um, how to get back to my job. And when I get back to India, I am just covering stories about women and the, you know, the horrible things that are happening to women in, in India. At that time, a woman was brutally raped on a bus. This is December of 2012. Mm -hmm. And finally, the world is paying attention to what's happening in India. Thank God. I mean, I've been trying to pitch those stories for years and couldn't get my editors to take them, and finally they're taking those stories. But I also understand that while this is happening in India, things are also happening in the U.S. They're happening in my own family. And I just realized, you know, I can write about other people's stories or I can start being a little bit more honest about what's happening, you know, in my own family. So my aunt died in March of 2013, and, I mean, I can... You know, I don't know, I don't want to, I don't know what exactly I think about God and divine intervention, but in a moment, in the week she died, I knew the name of my film was Women of the Mountain. I had an idea of the premise of my film. I had worked really hard and I had some money in the bank. So when I started the film in April of 2013, you know, the first money in was mine. And at that time, the film was going to be about three women who ran the longest ultra marathons in the world. And I had found these extraordinarily long races and really interesting parts of the world and really interested in women. 
And I really thought that that's what the film was going to be about. But even at that time, I mean, the person who was on my mind was my aunt who had just died. And I, running has always been my way to deal with problems. So I'm sure even at that time, even though the film wasn't about domestic abuse at that time, I can see now that by, you know, running a 130-mile race the month after my aunt died, that was a way for me to heal. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's how it really started, was just seeing a need and really not thinking too much about it, just just deciding this is what I'm going to do. Wow. I think I can relate to this. I've covered a lot of international conflict and women's experiences, and very often we hear about the bad things that happen to them. And so when you were originally thinking of Women of the Mountain and covering you know, other women who were running ultramarathons and stuff, I imagine it was a, a lot around their strength and their resilience. Like, What was sort of the original concept yeah, around that, the that film? Was, that's true. I mean, when I started this film, what I do know about women, and I know this, I mean, I know this about humanity, but specifically about women, is how powerful and resilient we are. And our incredible ability to endure, I do believe that's why we're still all here. And ultramarathon running is a great way to tell that story. And when I talk about ultramarathon running, I'm talking about all of the races that are in this film are over 125 miles at altitude, 10,000 feet and higher, up to 18,000 feet, you know, in the Himalayas and the Alps and the Sierra Nevada. They're really, really hard races. And in those races gender disappears and it really is about your ability to hang on and about your ability to get back up when you don't think you can. That's how you finish one of these long races. And it's such a great way to tell a story about life because that's life is getting back up when you don't think you can and then you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For the start of the film, what other women were you going to feature in the film? And it's such an extreme sport. So how does one even start doing like ultra marathon running? I mean, I think everyone has a, a different, um, a different path to ultra marathon running. I just wrote a story for the New York times on Courtney DeWalter, who uh, is crushing the 200 mile race. She's, she's winning these races and, you know, her path started as a seventh grader running cross country, but, there's people, there's a, a, a guy right now who's in his 70s, and I know many women who are in their 50s. And when I, I mentioned this guy in his 70s, you know, he didn't start running until I, I think he was in his 50s. So some people don't start running until much later in life. I think everyone has a different path to running. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe some people don't need running the way that I did. But growing up in, in the background that I grew up in, where things were pretty tumultuous, running was, was always a way, a way out and a way for me to heal. And you asked about these three different women. One woman was uh, Purna, who's from India, in a place where running is still in a very nascent stage. I ran a 135-mile race with her in Ladakh. Uh, the race hit 18,000 feet twice. What? Just, That's I mean, she's just, just such an extraordinary woman. The other woman is wow. Tanya, who's got five kids. Uh, she didn't start running until her late 30s. I ran a 200-mile race with her in Tahoe. Uh, another woman is Anka. We ran a 125-mile race in the Alps. Anka is in her late 40s. Maybe now she's actually in her early 50s. And in this race, 
133 people start the race, only 34 finish. There's five women who finish this race. Three wow. of those women are professional athletes. The last two to cross the finish line is Anka and I, and we crossed the finish line. We made it because we just refused to quit. So, mm. you know, this film has taken a turn. Like this was, and, and I really hope that there's, a space for these women in the film and certainly a multimedia space because a, a documentary could be done on each of these women I've just described. They are absolutely extraordinary. But what they did in these years, I mean, 2013, we're in 2019 now. I mean, it's been six years. Is they gave me the strength to tell my story. And they are my sisters, not just my sisters on my on the trail, but my sisters in life. Um, and so while the film has taken a turn and it's not as it's not doesn't focus on them the way that I thought it would. It focuses more on my family and my two aunts that are now deceased, um, in part from domestic abuse. These women who I spent the first three years of, of filmmaking profiling, they they paved the way for everything that's that's happened since. That yeah. Is- Really? Um, some, yeah, go ahead, Mia. Sorry. Yeah, really moving. Clearly, we both were, were really <laughs> inspired just to talk now. But I think something that you mentioned is, you know, it's not just the the people in the documentaries that um, change through the process, but it it changes the filmmaker. Like, I know for me, each film I've ever done has forced me to grow um, and has forced me. To, to get stronger as a person. I agree with yeah. that. I also think, you know, something we can talk about later is, um, you know, running as healing, filmmaking as healing, but also filmmaking as, a, as an ultra marathon, which yeah. can sometimes feel like it's going to break you, but also can be the most uh, transformational work that there is to do with ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. And especially when we choose, you know, to tell our own stories. Um, and to be willing to examine what's within us, which is probably the hardest thing any of us can do, especially then when we're choosing to put our story in a space where other people can interact with it. I agree. I mean, um, I think mentors just, you know, as a side note, the mentors that we have in our life really do shape us. And I have not had many mentors, but the mentors I've had have been my rocks. I mean, they, I would, just I can the gratitude I have for them is is extraordinary and one of my mentors is Sebastian Younger I met him when I was a senior in college and just throughout my journalism career he was just always a guiding light you know it's kind of like just very never directly but always just helping me with like the next career choice that I made and when it came to the film, he was very excited that I was making this film because it was on the hills of him making Restrepo. And so he was getting into, had been in filmmaking. And he's also a runner, so he was very excited about that part. But he sat me down in early 2015 and he said, you know, Rebecca, I really think this film is about your family. Hmm. I think that's what, really what it's about because nobody would have any idea where you came from or... Um, the fact that, you know, your your aunt who you're named after was killed by her husband and he also killed, this is my aunt Rebecca on my dad's side, he also killed, um, you know, your first cousin. And at that time when he was telling me this, I was not at all ready to hear it. 
I was just not ready to face those things. And I was like, oh, thanks. You know, that's great advice, Sebastian. But no, like, my film's about running and it's going to be about mm-hmm. this. And it's really, really funny. You know, that's been four years and I can see that he was right. It just mm-hmm. took sometimes it takes a really long time to be able to see what the story actually is and, and to evolve enough as a person that you're really ready to be honest with yourself enough to tell that story. Wow, I yeah. relate to that in so many different areas yeah. of my life, actually. <laughs> like The moments of evolution where I'm like, whoa, like I'm actually here where I can sort of try this new thing. And it's sometimes in the day-to-day, we don't see that growth, but then we have these moments where we're like, all right, actually... Yeah, time to take the next leap. So actually, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's let's dive into where the film is now and um, keep talking with Rebecca Byerly about Women of the Mountain. Well, welcome back to Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Riza and Ethnocene Collectives on Full Service Radio. Um, we're here with the incredible Rebecca Byerly talking about her ongoing project, um, Women of the Mountain. And we've just been talking about critical inflection point in the filmmaking process where Rebecca realized that she actually had to turn the camera on herself to make this and put herself in the story. Um, and so that's, I think, something that a lot of filmmakers grapple with and maybe come to um, unexpectedly. So, Rebecca, can you tell us more just about that process, that inflection point, and, and what it's been like for you? You know, it's kind of the ultimate vulnerability um, and strength, which for me, those two things are part of feminism, actually, what that moment has been like. Yeah, so it, it, the film really took a turn in 2015 when, so I'm two years into the film, and I have this 13-year-old who is my aunt's son. Uh, when she passed away in 2013, he never knew his dad. So I, my mother and I became guardians of Patrick, is his name. And um, I would never, I would never ever say I'm not his mom. And it's really important that I say this because he's very adamant about this. I'm not his mom. There will never be a replacement for his mom. But I'm one of the people that helps him get to the next aid station of his life. And in 2015, I was filming in Floyd, Virginia. And I really wasn't sure what I was trying to do. You know, I really, it wasn't clear to me, like, I'm in Virginia, I'm filming, I have a crew here, I'm trying to tell my story. But I'm really not even sure how to do that. And it's just, and part of that is because it is so vulnerable and you really have to trust the people around you and I and I you know this was a new crew and I am a director I really just I I would say I I probably didn't even have the right crew yet and Patrick is with me and we just have this interview and he just opens up and he starts talking about his mom and he starts talking about the horrible abuse that she experienced with her ex-husband Robbie who was not his dad because she told him about all of these things before she died 
And he told me about some of the things that were still happening in my family at that time that were absolutely not okay. And I realized that I had a responsibility to this young man that we needed to talk about what was happening in our family. We needed to talk about what had had happened in our family. Because if we did not talk about it and if we did not face it, the probability that it was going to happen again and that his wife was going to be part of that cycle was really likely. And so I would say that, you know, he has been my greatest catalyst. He, I tell him all the time, you are my reason for being. And, I mean, mothers would say this to their children, you know, and you can never really understand until you're looking at this young person and you're like, wow, like you are such an extraordinary young human and I just hope that I can like help you a little bit on your path. And so it was really when he was vulnerable that I realized, well, I've got to dig in and I've really got to look at what's happening in my family because it can't repeat with me and I can, and I need to really do everything that I can to make sure it doesn't repeat with Patrick. And so that was it. And the two of us just have been on this, Patrick and I, who's now 17, he'll be 18 in May and is, looking at schools now, applying to college, you know, we've been on this extraordinary journey of learning, of transformation, of tremendous grief and heartache, because it's hard when you rip off the Band-Aid and you start looking at what's really happening in your family. Um, So that's, I mean, that's where it started. And then from there, the next summer, I had this terrific DP named Bridget Auger, who I actually met in Cairo when I was studying abroad in college, and she and I worked together. I was the journalist, and she was the photographer for a couple of years. So we really knew each other, and she really knew my family. And I, in the summer of 2016, I said, okay, Bridget, we're going to do all of this. We're going to film this woman and this woman. And she said, I will only work for you if we film your family. That is the only way I'm going to work with you. And I thought, like, okay, let's spend three days with my family, and then we're going to do all these other things I want to do. And those three days ended up being a month. And it's really just sitting with people and asking questions, because I think people really do want to tell their stories. I think that they really do want to do that. And, um, and that's what we did, and that's what we've continued to do. And just to kind of give you a sense of what are those stories, my dad's sister, Rebecca, um, in 1969, her husband killed his father and killed my Aunt Rebecca and killed their son, who was six years old at the time, and then um, burned himself up in our family's farmhouse. And you would think that my dad, having had this really terrible experience, he was in his early 20s when he happened, would have a different behavior. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, he's exhibited those same cycles of violence. And I don't, I'm not angry at him in any way. I, have, I have actually have a lot of empathy for him. Um, so we not only tell the story of my Aunt Rebecca, but also of, um, of my dad, which is a real-life thing that's happening right now, and um, the way he's treated my stepmom, which is really not okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's my, my dad's side of the family. And then my mom, it's my Aunt Joan, my mom's sister, Patrick's mom, who uh, died in 2013, and her husband, uh, ex-husband, did not kill her, but he uh, he went to jail 
And as soon as he got out of jail, he killed the next woman he was with and her friend. And that's like, that's why we have to tell these stories because one of the things that my aunt Joan never got over until the day she died is that she did not warn the next woman her husband was with that this guy could really kill you. This guy could kill you. And, and then he unfortunately did. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things like this, you know, unbelievable divine intervention that has happened in this film is that I have so much archival material of both of my aunts that I've uncovered wow. with Patrick the last three years that, pretty much recreate their stories and their words through their journals, through their phone calls, through the archival video. I mean, it's more material than I could have ever imagined. And it's when things like that happen that you think it's like a a nod from the universe telling you you're going in the right direction. Keep going. Mm -hmm. You know, my family was actually recently impacted by a murder as well. And it's this interesting thing because it's such a hard thing to just like you know casually mention or bring up that you're really sad because of because it's so extraordinary sounding for most people um you know I really believe that there's no way through it but through it like it's really important Mm -hmm. to be present with things and to let yourself sometimes truly explore that pain and that and for me as a storyteller um you know, as you were saying, the story is still happening. And when you're intentional about the story happening, you can also kind of like create the story and how it's going to go forward the way that you and Patrick are. So I'm curious for you in terms of kind of exploring your own story here with Patrick, what, what are you hoping to experience or what impact do you hope it will have for the two of you individually and together in your family? And, and also, you know, for the audience of this film one day, because healing isn't this thing that's just uh it's such a loaded word, right? Like, oh, things are better, easy. It's really fucking hard. It's a really intense, yeah. like you said, there's all this devastation in the process. So, you know, why why are you um, and how are you um, engaging in this? And, and what's the, the vision that you have for kind of the healing aspect for yourself and your family? Well, first, you know, first of all, I'm really sorry that you had that experience, but this murder in your family because that is just tragic and it's just such a punch in the stomach that takes a really really long time to get over and the most you can hope for is healing Mm -hmm. and so and for without knowing any of the circumstances I really do from the bottom of my soul hope for healing for you and your family and everyone involved thank you Rebecca yeah and that's that's what that's what I hope for in this film. I mean, the next part of filming, I, I do believe, is going to be the hardest part. I mean, the next thing I hope to film is my Uncle Robbie in jail, who I haven't seen since I was six years old, because I really believe that we do need to hold a space, a space with boundaries, you know, a space where, like, you know, I'm not going to allow myself to get hurt by... Robbie or you know, even by my own dad anymore but I do believe it's important that there is a space for them to tell their stories because I think their stories matter I think there's somebody who can identify with my uncle Robbie who's going to be in prison for for the rest of his life and he's only in his early 50s right now um, I think there's someone who can identify with his story so the next part of filming will be um, hopefully filming Robbie in jail and, you know, I do hope that some of the men in, in this film who 
have exhibited really aggressive behavior, I mean, who have certainly abused the people in their life. Like, I would love to have a space for them to really speak. And that doesn't mean that their behavior is okay, but I believe if we want to engage a whole audience, and a whole audience is women and it's also men, then we really do need to have a space for the men to tell their story. And so the next part of filming is that. And that, for me, is just um, making sure that I'm in alignment with myself to do that. I mean, not to let my own ego get in the way. And also to be really careful that I do keep a safe space and a safe, you know, safe boundaries for, for, my, for myself. You ask, like, mm. what do I really want to happen with this film? And, and that's that we talk about these things. And that we talk about them because these cycles of abuse, they are intergenerational and they absolutely will continue until we have a conversation and until we change our behavior. And I can't control my family. I can only control myself. And, you know, I really do believe this film and the process of making this film certainly woke me up to what was happening in my family. It helped me to, in my own life, not become another statistic, not to repeat some of the really unhealthy behaviors. You know, this is one in three women. And every socioeconomic, you know, background that you can think of, it's across race, it's, it's everywhere. And so I hope that by being really vulnerable, it, it helps other people be vulnerable. And I think something that you're getting at about, like, wanting the kind of impact for it to have is that, you know, all of us sort of take responsibility and sort of look at the entire context of the issue. So not just um, ascribing blame to one person, um, but asking for everyone to be thoughtful about how is, um, how is violence impacting men who may be per- per- perpetuating this in the future. So I think that's really important that that you're um, trying to get at that and yeah to, and I think to heal and to just I mean you know with Patrick like I he has a lot more information about what's going on than I had when I was 17 and what he decides to do with that though is ultimately up to him I always and this is why running is such a great metaphor in this film like in an ultra marathon, you have aid stations throughout a race. And at these aid stations, you get food and water. And often along the trail, someone you meet in the middle of the night when you're down and out helps you get to that next aid station. And as alone as I may have felt in my life at times, I do believe there has always been someone there helping me get to the next aid station of my life. And I see myself with Patrick as I've just you know, I've just been there helping him get to that next aid station in his life, which I hope is college. And I hope he's, you know, more equipped for that experience. And and I do know that that's all that I can do. I don't ultimately have control of that outcome. Um, but I don't, I without this film, I don't know that I would have made this time. And it has absolutely reconnected me to, like, my dad's side of the family, who I hadn't spoke to in years before I started making this film. And, you know, for that, I am just so thankful. That's such a beautiful metaphor that, um, um, about 
helping each other out when we can. And I wanted to ask you, I know that the, the film is still in the process. Um, how can the community support you in, in the film? And what do you need next to keep going with the film? Well, in, in any, you know, in any filmmaker's journey, funding is always really important. And I'm so thankful to my extraordinary executive producers, Gabrielle Hole, Debbie McLeod, um, Elizabeth Cat, and Kevin Phillips, who have come on and supported this film in such a big way. If it wasn't for them, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't have a film right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, it's continuing um, to raise money for this film, which is so vital. You know, we've got to. Uh, we have a lot more filming to do, uh, and then we we are in post, but. But that's for probably, I would say, um, you know, not, now we're looking for an editor to take this film home. So certainly, like, you know, to answer your question, it's always funding. And specifically right now, I'm looking for an excellent, experienced female producer who can just rock this film. I have been mm-hmm. uh, the producer and director. I've been the all-hands-on-deck person for this film, which I will continue to be, but I need a great producer. I need a fantastic editor who can handle the 600-plus hours of footage from the last six years and really see the story. Um, That's something that I'm really looking for right now. And, you know, I I encourage you to check out Women of the Mountain on Facebook. Uh, We have an extraordinary community of people from around the world that have supported the film since day one. Uh, So that's a a great way to connect with the film. I mean, so that's really, you know, I would say right now, like, it's, it's finding a producer, it's finding the right editor, it's continuing with funding, and just generally having a, a community. It has been very, very, very lonely at times. And that's where I say, like, there's always someone helping you get to the next aid station because I have yeah. never felt more alone than I felt in the period, you know, in the process of making this film. But I have never been alone. I have mm-hmm. had wonderful people. There haven't been many, but the few that there have been have absolutely held my hand and helped me get to that next place. And again, I'm, you know, I'm really thankful for that. But I think, you know, we as uh, female filmmakers, it's so important that we band together. And, and it, not just not just women. I mean, I had a, a great lunch today with uh, one of my male mentors and friends. And, you know, I just think it's just so important that we, we support each other. Amen. I hear that. So you hear that universe? Rebecca needs a producer. Yeah, I need a producer. I need an editor. And I need to continue to raise money. Uh, and I'm really excited about the social, you know, I realize, like, I've spent all this time making this film, but I'm making this film because I really want to make a difference. I really, really do. And I am as dedicated to the social impact part of this film, which will happen when it's done, as I am, you know, to the making of this film. So I say, gosh, it might have been eight years of my life by the time the film comes out, but really, I need to add another couple years to that because I will be completely dedicated to getting this film to as many people as possible once it comes out. And, you know, sometimes I do think, well, what, what's going to happen? Like, you know, because you never really know, you know, how successful will your film be? But I I was, you know, talking with you, both of you, 
uh, yesterday and, you know, the Oscars are coming out and, uh, well, the Oscars have, you know, the Oscar nominations have been announced. And of course, every filmmaker wants that. And I realized, though, that more than any Oscar, like the whole process of making this film and the learning involved and the healing involved and the relationships that have been built are more than I could have ever imagined. And and that is also really what I look forward to um, in bringing this film home and the next year, year and a half is is those is building on those relationships and the relationships that I you know have yet to make. So beautifully stated. I think that's a a great articulation of kind of um, our vision for what feminist filmmaking is, or at least mine, and also why we have this podcast. You know, to create the community and the ecosystem of that deep support. And Rebecca, you know, after watching you run around the American University campus. Uh, few years ago now um, and sort of watching you travel the world and vice versa like what a beautiful thing to uh, bump into you in LA at the International Documentary Association meeting and for that to kind of create this space for this really meaningful and rich conversation that I truly believe is part of that process of probably giving other people the courage you know to tell their stories um, and to delve into what's there it certainly gives me more of that courage because it is not easy Um, So thank you, you know, so much for sharing with us today. Thank you, Maggie. And thank you so much also, Mia Sarah. And Maggie, I love seeing the women we became. It's (laughs) a beautiful thing that we met each other at 18 years old. And I am just, again, filled with gratitude. Two girls from rural Virginia. (laughs) Rural Virginia. I mean, you know, it's an just amazing where life can take you and I know part of that is because we always had a a heart for the world so I'm (laughs) really thankful that at 35 we've connected here (laughs) same and uh hopefully we'll have each other's back for many decades to come absolutely Um, so Mia Sarah thanks for you know being the co-host and for stepping oh in today. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's my first episode. How do you think I did, Rebecca? How do you think I did, Maggie? Oh, I think you should have her back, Maggie, for sure. <laughs> All right. It's always <laughs> a growing <laughs> process. We're always growing. Um, I love doing this, and uh, I just wish we had more time. But unfortunately, that's it for today. So um, thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been Bad Feminist Making Films on Full Service Radio. Catch you next time.